Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 19. As we learned last week, the COVID-19 pandemic has been grinding everything to a halt, and the impact on all of us has only increased since then. The surfing, sporting, and entertainment worlds are largely on hold. We're on a version of lockdown here in California. Businesses are scrambling to figure out what to do now and in future. Families are dealing with separation and, in some cases, togetherness. And people everywhere are working through fear, anxieties, the unknown, and the ever-changing realities of life at this time. It is surreal, but we are going to get through it. And as I flagged last week, and as I'll likely flag from now until we're out of this, and probably after, COVID-19 symptoms from the CDC can include runny nose, sore throat, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If you are not feeling well, call your doctor. The World Health Organization behavioral recommendations that everyone should follow. Wash your hands, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. If you have to cough or sneeze, do so into your elbow. Social distancing, avoid groups of 10 or more people and stay away from everyone as much as you can. If you're not feeling well, get checked out as soon as possible. And if you can work from home, do it. Let's flatten the curve and get the hell out of this. Now, onto the fun stuff. The WSL has released two new shows this week on worldsurfleague.com. The first is the WSL Vault Show, releasing every Monday and featuring a championship tour show from the Audis. How I miss the Audis. This week's Vault episode, the 2007 Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast, where Snapper Rocks absolutely fired. Jeremy Flores claimed he got hosed because the judges missed his barrel behind the rock. And Mick Fanning beat B. Derbage in the final. The surfing is awesome. The fashion is questionable. Check it out if you haven't already. And the WSL Rewind, dropping Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday every week. This week, to make up for us not being able to start the 2020 season, we're replaying the entirety of the 2014 Quicksilver and Roxy Pro Gold Coast that sparked the rise of the Brazilian storm with Gabriel Medina taking Joel Parkinson in a controversial final and Stephanie Gilmore setting up title run number six. These shows will drop each week and we encourage you to watch and get in the conversation while we're all on hold here. And we're going to keep delivering these podcasts. They are, however, going to be slightly different than the ones we've been putting out. Due to the shelter-in-place directives, we're doing these over video conference, so that's one thing, and we'll be homing in or attempting to home in on a singular topic each week as opposed to a broad biographical roaming. As such, we're calling these podcasts the lineup at low tide because depending on the location, you can't often surf at dead low tide, although my own experience has been different, but that's neither here nor there. All right. Episode 19, or episode 1, of the lineup at low tide. Surfing means something different to everyone. That's part of what makes it so special. You may like big waves, you may like logging, you may like tour monsters or aerial cowboys. At the WSL, our organization endeavors to tell as many surfing stories as possible, wrapped around the engine that is the championship tour. But, as we've discussed often on this very podcast... There have been eras in surfing history where the performance shifting movement has not been on tour. I'm a surfer, and I'm a fan of surfing regardless of where it happens, and today's conversation mines the topic of the rise and fall and potential rebirth of having a voice in surfing and explores an important and potent corner of the surfing and cultural media landscape. Our guest today is someone who 
parallel path my own trajectory in the surfing world to a degree where we occasionally found ourselves on the same side of the fence in either purpose or philosophy. In point of fact, we both cut our teeth under Evan Slater at Surfing Magazine around the same time in 2004 and 2005. And while I left to join the circus that was the ASP, today's guest rose to ultimately run the show at Surfing, where he shifted the entire focus of our world alongside like-minded influencers like Kai Neville, Stuart Cornell, and Scott Chenoweth. A creator and thinker at heart, he co-founded and oversaw editorial at What Youth. He co-produced earth-halting surf films like Dear Suburbia and Cluster. And after leaving his own creation at What Youth, he's re-emerged with his latest project, Inherent Bummer. Please enjoy the lineup's low-tide conversation with Travis Frey. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxing. You know, I think when we were talking about the other day is like if we could hone these conversations in around a singular topic and for you and me being the same age and having not similar trajectories, um, but kind of like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cross-section points in the surfing world. We kind of, that topic of the rise and fall and potential rebirth of surf journalism felt right. And that entry point that we were talking about with you is that summer of 2011, you were the editor in chief of surfing magazine, um, and you guys were partnered with Kai Neville around the Deer Suburbia trip. And it felt like knowing you at the time, there was a lot of conversations around how that informed the next chapter of your life and leaving Surfing Magazine and what youth. So maybe we just kind of start there and kind of break that summer down where you were in your life, um, what was exciting you and, and what what created that transition for you um, from surfing to the to what youth. Yeah. And it's funny. And, you know, I went up and grabbed two, two of the issues you kind of like had mentioned we might talk about. And it's one of the rare times that I think that I've read anything I've done in my whole thing where I wasn't like using some sort of like frustration to fuel it. I was like, there is so much good stuff going on surfing at the time. Like that, you know, some of the intros I wrote for the magazine were about like, you know, all I'm raving about is like this ocean had a swell, this ocean had a swell. We went to Japan and everyone thought we got skunk, but we scored too. And like everyone was scoring. It was all kinds of fascinating. Like, you know, Joji and Kai were kind of like, you know, had their own arms race going of like who could make the best video. Um, the world tour was like uh, at a really kind of interesting place where it was like, it had growing pains, but it was also so exciting because we were like all getting to watch, you know, like, good feeds of the contests and kind of felt really engaged. And then you had like, that was when Dane was kind of like one foot in, one foot out and you never knew. And that was kind of exciting because he, if he didn't do the contest, he'd go do the videos. And um, so, yeah, and like kind of looking back at that time, that summer, it was 2011, Lost Atlas had come out and Kai and I threw like the premiere via Surfing Magazine. Uh, we partnered with Hurley and then, um, Kai's movie, which we, for the first time ever, surfing devoted like the whole issue to Lost Atlas. And so it was like the magazine issue release where we devoted the entire issue, which was kind of unheard of at the time for a magazine. 
like usually you were trying to balance everything out and keep like, you know, you had to have a hardcore travel trip and like a flashy air trip and a, you know, a long read and an essay and which was, which is good. But this one, we kind of threw it out the window. We're like, we're saving all this. We're going to make like the, you know, the yearbook of Kai's movie. It's going to come out at the same time as the movie. We threw that big party during the U.S. Open that year, um, like blocked off the streets. And I remember like, I mean, we were all having like the best time ever. And like kids were like filling the streets. It's like we threw a festival and the movie's playing. And we had like some of our favorite bands playing the show. And it was it was kind of like that little spark that was like, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we sort of bottled this a little more? It was like at the time we were kind of trying to make a, a noise for what we were into in surfing, which wasn't always, we weren't always allowed to just talk about what we were into. You know, like I said, it was that balance. It was, which Evan Slater, who I took over for at surfing had done a great job of like teaching me how to make well-balanced magazines. And like, um, and I owe like, I think a lot of what made me good at making magazines to him, but um, it was really exciting to kind of let go. I'm not Evan Slater. This is my chance to, you know, celebrate all this stuff. And like, you know, you have like the modern, really like lean into the modern collective era and then run with that. And so that summer was like a culmination of that. It felt like. And you you started at Surfing Magazine in 2004 under Evan? Yeah. Yeah. I was like an intern. I did every, every single uh, editorial job they had there like I was intern associate editor managing editor and then editor-in-chief yeah and I because I started when I graduated I I started freelancing with Evan at the end of 2005 and got a couple things printed the big one I did was the closure of Clark phone with Matt Walker and that was like a big deal that's like and then real journalism is what you did well I did I'm like an entertainer I feel like I'm not a journalist but don't worry, I, I got uh, the other. All the other publications were definitely non-real journalism. But when did you take over in the in the editor in chief role for Evan? And I think that's interesting what you're talking about, right? Which is you take over in a role you've been taught how to do a thing, and eventually you decide that well, no, I and I can't. This is kind of what we're getting at, right? This is my voice. I'm making this decision to abandon how I was taught and and make a real critical decision on what I want to do and what I want to talk about. Yeah, no, and and I was 26 years old and, like, pretty, I mean, it's kind of wild. Like, I was young, and I always held that position as editor-in-chief of surfing or surfer or transworld or one of the big magazines at the time, like, in such high regard. That was my goal from when I was 18 and, like, went to college. I was like, I'm going to do that. That's I was, like, made for that. And I so it was, like, so razor-focused on that for so long and then to get there when Evan you know doing everything Evan said like fall I mean Evan is a mutant human he wakes up at like 4 a.m and he surfs blacks and then he'd drive from Carlsbad to San Clemente be the best editor-in-chief that surfing's ever had and uh, just like a legend the guy's like a Mavericks icon and he's a crazy he's he's like we were very different but we also were both like came from like heavy surf backgrounds and knew the industry and knew the culture. And so I was definitely not Evan, but I was like, uh, I learned a lot from him to kind of keep me on (laughs) in the rails instead of just being like, uh, yeah, just, just like influential years of my life, like learning under him and how to be a professional, I guess. 
you know, from 22 to 26, you're, you're unsure of whether you're fun or you're professional or what are you? And you're in the surf culture. Like, I don't know. Like, um, so he taught me like a lot about that. And, um, it was kind of out of the blue. It was like, he, he was grooming me to be the, the boss and like teaching me things along the way, but he kind of like out of the blue, um, went on to work at one of the brands, worked at Hurley. And yeah, I'll never forget like the day he kind of like came in and told me like, I'm going to go work at Hurley. You're taking over. And it was like trial by fire. Like here's all the budgets and here's all the things and here, go, go take over, call all nine photographers and tell them like that the guy who put them on the team, like, you know, it's like, you can use a sports analogy. It's just like kind of like a rewrite of the team, you know, like rebuilding. Yeah. Rebuild. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, sure. I, I remember, uh, Tony Perez was the publisher at the time. And a lot of people were like, oh, Evan's leaving. So like surfing mags, like, you know, rebuild back to whatever. And we're going to lose all these advertisers and no, no one knows who I am or what I'm going to do. And um, I always have to give Tony Perez a little bit of credit for like leaning into, you know, we had a young, good staff at surfing, you know, and of like Scott Chenoweth and Shado Agonza and Pete. I think Steve Sherman was there and then Pete Terrace came on um, quickly right after that. And we had like a, like Jimmy Wilson, we had like such a solid, like young crew, but like unproven, but we were like all had our credentials. We were like ready to go. Like we, it's all we knew was making surf mags and, and surf, surf industry. And so um, he just like leaned into us and was like, you guys are going to, you know, hit every deadline, work all night, go to every industry event, make noise, like, whatever it is you're into, like lean into it and go. And so he just like, we, we had a good little run there of like just making noise in the industry and being kind of who we were. And I knew I'd never like be Evan Slater. So I had to be myself um, in what I was into. I just happened to like, you know, really love surf films and like contests. Of course, we all pay attention to it. It just was like, I just loved that like enthusiasm that comes from like, surf films and that like jazzed up feeling you get when you're driving to the beach or with your friends or I don't know it's like a camaraderie it's a competitiveness it's like enthusiasm and romanticism like I'm kind of like a hopeless romantic I guess is what it is about that type of stuff um and so we just kind of leaned in on that and Kai Kai and I were like the same age and met and we're like sweet we're like homies and we still are for, for life you know and um, well, and there, there is like a real, like, I remember cause we're all about the same age. We are about the same yeah. age and being on the other side of it. And, and there was like a harder quarantine between this is competitive surfing and this is like the culture of surfing. And, you know, Evan, you know, generationally came out of that space where he was like the balance. He's like, there's the free surf guys and there's the competitive surf guys mm -hmm. and the brand, the brands really dictated that balance a lot, especially when I started, because the brands ran all the events like soup to nuts essentially. And the ASP was more or less like a marketing mechanism for the surf industry and mm -hmm. the brands with, that was really the Zenith too. I think like right in before the global recession, yeah. like Oh five, Oh six or seven. And they were running surfing almost end to end where they're like, look, we're running the Billabong pro in Tahiti. We're also sponsoring the Wade Goodall film. We're running ads within the competition webcast saying like i don't understand how guys could sit on the beach and judge each other they're like marketing against themselves in a lot of ways and yeah. it's really interesting and and i think that like what you and your crew tapped into was around that 
that dear suburbia time like it was it that whole the whole thematic captured a moment in time of like post-recession creative haze like the optimism of possibility and and the potential of this new world because i was sitting a little bit on the other side of the fence and i'm like i just like whoever's ripping you know and we were of a similar age so i was really excited with like the dane and jordy and craig anderson and mitch colborne stuff and what was happening in that space and and it felt like the industry was ready to gravitate towards that in a big way and kind of make that the gold standard for what was important in surfing. And you guys really tapped into the zeitgeist of the moment in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it felt like I celebrating all of that. And I think it's just like the formula too, that I was brought up on and Kai, you know, Kai was like Taylor Steele's right-hand man for a long time and I'm Evan Slater. And so we had like really good educations and all of that of like how the free surf world worked and then how the industry worked. And, and then, but we, I think we both like just kind of looked at each other like, and we had kind of like to build on what you're saying is like, we had a moment too where we're, we're like, I remember like hardcore surf travel, like going to the scariest place you could go at the time was kind of in vogue. Like there was like every issue we did at surfing for a while was like, had some new wave discovery or like, just really hardened, crazy, you know, discovery culture of, of like the world and the Google Earth, you know, like uh, land water grab that that was. And, um, and Kai and I were like, that's cool. We have way more fun like surfing beach breaks with our friends and watching it after and like, yeah, I don't know, going to Paris for the weekend. <laughs> I remember Kai's like, I'd rather go like be cosmopolitan for a weekend and then go surf all week and come back. I don't know. And we just kind of like played that up, which would be unheard of when Evan was in there. It was like, no, don't do that. Um, and so it all played into that like uh, lather that we were building, like that you were talking about where content there was that divide but we're kind of like pushing against it but we wanted to be a part of it too but like no we really got to like make a name for you know doing these films and and that and it we built on that by like going like let's embrace music let's embrace art and be the weirdos of this culture because you know there's a lot of pushback of that too we're like aerial hipster kids or whatever (laughs) at the time and um it wasn't all we were but like we we enjoyed that like a lot and we were like yeah let's own that well and that's and it's like that gets into like surfing being something different for everyone and like creating all these little sub niches within it where you've got the hardcore competitive person and then you've got like the hipster air guy and you've got like the uh, you wrote about it in your deer surfing thing like the the hardcore road warrior that like doesn't mind roughing it and like charging slabs and knows all the back roads of Baja, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like beginners, like you've just got this whole spectrum of people and surfing means something different to each one of them. So it kind of oscillates in the sense of like what's in vogue and what's not in vogue and what is driving that. Is it, is it the industry or is it a demographic or is it support from outside the surfing world? And th- there's not really a right or wrong answer, but mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of you using that, experience and locking into a voice of what you found important and finding you know colleagues and scott and kai what was the decision like to leave surfing magazine's editor-in-chief role because as you said that's something that you'd you'd put on a pedestal since you were really young Mm -hmm. and forge your own path with wet youth can you talk us through that that kind of process for you 
Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think it was it was a tricky time. I mean, from getting the job, I did it for I think editor in chief job for two two years or year and a half, um, and it was it was amazing. It was everything I wanted. I think there was just that natural like. Uh, it was when Kai and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, we we know we can like, I could have this job for ten years, and we were young enough and like dumb enough and enthusiastic enough to. To, to like say fuck it like we were both like whatever 28 and he's 27 not that he had to jump off anything he was just gonna make films but he's like let's let's do something radical if you if you want to jump into a project together like let's see if we can like build this into something that does celebrate a little more beyond just what we were trained to be into and so it was extremely hard it wasn't like it happened kind of quickly but like what was going on internally at surfing was um, Scott had moved to New York and was being an art director in New York and was going to like go that path and I, I still had him like designing some layouts from New York and um, Stuart Cornell was with me at surfing too and he had just moved to Portland to work at an agency up there and do kind of that thing and so it was like and Kai was like well I'm about to kick off this new movie Lost Atlas had just premiered and I was like, just kind of going like, okay, am I going to keep doing it? And I, to be honest, like, I felt like we had made like, probably like the four or five of my favorite like magazine issues we'd ever made that year. I was like, you know, we did the Lost Atlas entire one. We did the Japan issue and we did um, this one that had John John on the cover that said, is anyone listening? It was uh, a couple months before that. And it, felt, it was like, that was like our... Um, signature magazine I think at that era of surfing and um yeah I was just like so excited on that and I, I wanted to keep going in that direction that, that those issues were leading to um and it was not easy I had all the comforts in the world I was like doing my dream job like living in Huntington and working in San Clemente and surfing and traveling and you know had all the backing of um you know Tony Perez was still the publisher and like so supportive like I, I never really had to deal with a lot of the the publisher coming in and telling you what to do he, he really like I could never complain about that it was always like do what you guys know is now and edgy and that's what surfing magazine we always celebrated that too as far as like surfer versus surfing surfing was like the flexible one we were allowed to like take the risks and yeah. be kind of like we got to be the the little brother that got to have the fun and experiment a little more um, it, it was also it was like the right time too right because i mean it, even today like the media landscape had changed so much and you know print across like surfing and sport and everywhere was kind of trending in a downward spiral and and it felt like the industry again it was that post-recession a bit of fatigue i mean the tour at the time if we're talking 2010 2011 like there was this big build up to kelly winning 10 and 10 he does yeah. it everyone's like we're ready for this like generational like character shift on tour and then he came back in 2011 and won again yeah and so i think people were looking for an outlet for those stories and those characters and i think that's kind of where what you've sailed in and i'm not i'm not trying to underestimate how how difficult it was i'm sure it was really hard but you guys were poised at the right time with the right talent with the right generation of surfers to do something impactful and that that to me really came to life, not in the form, not, not, not just in the form of the print magazine, but like Dear Suburbia felt like a real high watermark in those early years. 
Yeah, for sure. No, I, all of that's true. It was, it was like, we've done that. And then I think behind the scenes too is something you can't ignore is like, uh, when I first worked at surfing for the first like six years, we were in the Astro deck offices next door to Astro deck. And it, it had this clubhouse feel that I, that's why I wanted to work at a surf magazine is like all the reasons that you don't work at a big corporate office. And, and like that I never experienced it. And then they moved, we got bought by some corporate giant at the time. And, you know, I'm 26 and, move in next door to surfer and there's like 15 other magazine titles in there. And I remember we were like, so put out, we asked if they would move us to like where the, in the garage where like the warehousing was, I was like, can we just have a corner down there? We don't want to be up in that zone. And they kind of actually like looked into it for us, but <laughs> just, just like, cause I'm like, this is not, I would come to work and be like, this is not why we, you know, signed up for this. I remember we even had Andrew Doheny's band come in like three days before we, or like after moving into this, like, super office space type office and play some band he had at the time louder than anything had ever been in that building and gotten tons of trouble but it felt like we needed to like <laughs> christen the place for some kind of like noise it, it is so weird like because that that's like a theme that played out and continues to i guess like a ton at that time which is that you get this really special sauce like niche culture the people there understand what makes it special it succeeds almost to its detriment, right? To where elements come in that are like, this seems like a really potent thing. Let's tap into that and make some money. And that's not exactly the wrong thing. I mean, there's been core surfers and people in core worlds that have been making money off of what it is for years and years, but there is a tipping point, right? Where it's like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna elevate this to a space that you're actually losing what makes it special in the first place a lot of times. And you see it time and again, and it's like the Michael Thompson quote of like, you know, size is the enemy of cool. It does become really hard to stay potent if you're going to spread it out across so much. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and it is something I've seen, obviously at the ASP, we had five people when we were acquired. Now we've got like, you know, more than a hundred and it's something that's become a real challenge, right? Because you can't be all things to everybody. You have to really rally around what your identity is and what makes you special. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's probably something that plays out outside of surfing too, you know, whether it's Sports Illustrated cutting a ton of staff writers to make room for some other kind of thing. And it's a weird sort of corporate melding with culture um, that never seems to sustain, you know, it always seems like yeah. it's like, it might work a little bit. And then at the end of the day, the ones that are sustainable are the ones that were actually true to what they were at the beginning. And then they, they drive that out through whatever mechanisms they can. It's, yeah. And it, I'm sure they have tough thing, yeah. years and lean years. It's like at times you could probably point to, I don't know who's still kind of, you know, doing well in the industry, but you'd look at them and be like, Oh, they're the lame ones, but they'd just be hunkered down and, and not, you know, living outside their means a bit at the time. And then they'll have their moment. So it's, yeah, it's tricky. But as far as like we were concerned, I was just looking around. I remember going, I'm not, this isn't what, who I am anymore. Mm. And I had this one little moment of, of like creative, uh, a crew that, that was same age as me and, and like had the same sort of vision. And like, uh, I think you were leading to is, um, it was like when the internet and magazines weren't this weird crossroads of what's going to happen here and we, you know every every magazine got a website but they're doing the print and basically we just like took on way more work and we're doing both and um 
we just sort of were like, this is going to change. Let's try to modernize it. We, we can do it. I mean, we were so naive to starting a company and doing and ripping the bandit off that it was like poetic how, how much we knew nothing. <laughs> we're like just so hopelessly romantic about like quitting our jobs and, you know, losing salaries and thinking that we could just do it. And, and we, it would have never happened if we didn't have that kind of like naive outlook, but it, it, that was the beauty of us, I think for that time. Well, and it kind of, I mean, it's funny as when I was rewatching some of the films, which obviously closely mirrored the print output and the digital output, like looking at the cast, the crew you had in, in Dear Suburbia, like the, the, how do I put it? Like, the value associated with them just for like fans, which I guess that translates to like their sponsors. And then it translates to them as people seems so high. And I, like what youth obviously played a huge role in providing that platform. And I'll just read through the cast for dear suburbia, but like Craig Anderson, Chippa Wilson, Mitch Colborn, Dane Reynolds, Taj Burrow, Jack Freestone, Evan Geiselman, Colohandino, Jack Robinson, Jay Davies, John, John Florence, Dusty Payne, Dion Aegis, Connor Coffin and Dylan Perillo. I probably missed people, but like that, that, that we're talking, we're talking at, well, I had them written down, <laughs> but like, that was like 2011, 2012. Like some of them are, some of them are obviously like, like very popular people, but you got some of them like really early on. Like, I, I mean, and the themes that I, I kind of pulled out of rewatching that is, is like the harbinger of what was to come with John John. He's obviously been on the radar for a long time, but I was having this conversation with someone today and I said, I remember when he qualified, it would have been about the same time because he got on at the halfway point in 2011 and people hadn't really clued into how good he was outside of like tube riding, you know? And it was this yeah. thing of like, I hope he gets like a few events with good waves so he can stay on tour like no one had tracked how good he was outside the barrel really. And then yeah. as soon as he came on and then he won like his first event, just doing huge backhand rotations in Rio and people were like, Oh my God, he might, he might be okay. And, um, yeah. you know, like, I, I mean, that's gotta be one of like the high water marks for Dane. I mean, one of, but like Jesus, like, yeah, no, that was like that surfing Japan, Japan surfing's out of control. Yeah. I just went through that Japan issue and was like, these sequences are psycho still and will always be i think um but it's the john john thing is funny too do you remember john john wasn't very good at like in the necessary <laughs> i don't want to say not very good but he was like yeah. almost like a like uh you know we'd all known him since he was three um you know i did the nssa program at surfing for so long that i like interviewed guys like john john and kolohe and Zeke Lau, like so many times the same questions for probably like nine years of our, me being at the magazine and them going from age like eight to 16 or whatever. Like, the, yeah. But John John was like almost like a disappointment on the NSSA. He just couldn't compete. He'd come for nationals and lose third round or it was uh, super unfortunate. And like, we're like, dang, maybe we uh, got it we, wrong. Yeah. Hear, yeah. Got it wrong. And, but I just remember that being so fascinating that it's just like a kid and he's a kid. It reminds you of like growing and he's growing and he's going through all these like crazy things and, and they all look at him. He's it, clearly it worked out, but well, it's just funny and, how much and, we put on that. And also like the, the surfing industrial hype machine and the impact it has on people. Like I, I might get my dates wrong, but like 
I think the year that he qualified, he'd actually broken his back at backdoor earlier in the year. And he was mm -hmm. a little bit like off the radar. And as you said, like he wasn't broadly considered like a like a versatile threat. Like he was like a tube guy. And it was still the time when people were like, oh, tube guys aren't air guys or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. And I remember that contrasting with like the Nike content they were rolling out about brother. Like they had that like white wetsuit clip of him at gravels and like he's doing like four foot air rotations on two foot waves and everyone's just like, he's going to be world champ like immediately. And it set this like radically unfair bar and expectation for him in year one to where like he didn't have a bad rookie year. He made like the quarters, but the people out in the world were like, oh no, he failed. Like he should be winning events and stuff. And it's like, it's the weird, the, the inverse of that was John who didn't really have a huge hype reel heading into the year. And he kind of snuck in under the radar, so to speak, and then really wowed people. Yeah. The um, I am interested, like, did you guys at that time, I guess sort of like late oddies, early tens, with the group that you worked with exclusively, I know that the media kind of created a foil against the traditionalists, but like, what was your perspective on like a Mick Fanning at the time? Like, so like Mick Fanning in like the late oddies, early tens, were you guys just like, look, that's conservative and dated, like we're the new way, like, or, or, or was that more just kind of like out in the, out in the market? No, I would, I mean, it, it, I mean, it sucks because, I mean, Mick is such a, le like, so sick. He's probably one of the cooler, you know, nicest, raddest, would have fit right in with us. But, yeah, of course, we're, like, at the time, he's, you know, robotic, laser, f perfect angle, everything yeah. man, which... His board shorts were too long, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, mostly just, he was just so bulletproof at the time. Like, so, yeah. and our whole thing was to be is like, I don't know, not, like, just... It's okay to just chill. <laughs> I don't know. It was just like so. I don't know if it was during that, like, just working out and being such an athlete and celebrating that. Which Mick really, if you really know him, that was that was just like a little window in his. You know, he's really focused on winning, and he figured yeah. it out, and he knew how to get himself to do that. Um, I don't think any. Of, I remember being on a trip, like one of the first white youth trips, and we saw Mick, and he came and surfed with us, and. Like said, I don't know. It was like we were all home. It was no, there was like no. Uh, There's no tension. Weirdness yeah. or no. It was, I mean, well, sure, then, we'd watch a comp and be like, wow, it's so sick, but it's so kind of formulaic, I guess. Yeah. And it's I think it was, it, it, but it was also, I mean, it, the, I guess the proof point there too is that r shortly after that time, I think 2012, 2013, like Mick, you know, consummate professional and someone who wants to continue to get better kind of started working with mayhem wanted to shake up his own surfing like mm -hmm. he really like he sailed through that eugene like fanning the fire phase into like hyper professional to the point of being considered formulaic and conservative to just basically saying no i can do all that stuff i used to do all that stuff now i'm just going to blend it into my whole program like really quickly like kind yeah. of really considering I mean, the breadth of what he accomplished and maybe like we all had that like we knew that you know we picture him in three degrees and yeah and like momentum under them but we knew like there's like flashy edgy <laughs> beer loving cool and got a kid in there that 
you know, just because he was, you know, stretching a lot more than everyone didn't mean. Like, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, his hips were a lot more. I mean, open he, than yeah, ours. he definitely was stretching a lot. It's funny though, like because it's like surfing is one of those things. Is obviously more than the sport. It ends up like becoming people's identities, and I think we all take things like to the next level. I'm sure it happens in a lot of sports, but like you know, like if you are on the what generationally or just disposition wise, like I really like Dan Reynolds. I like his stuff. I like his surfing. I like the way he carries himself. And when he's on tour, you're like, I want him to succeed because this platform is associated with importance in the broad surfing world. So then anytime he comes up against someone who maybe you don't gel as much with, you're like, oh God, like, you know, can we just get over the hump? And, and that kind of brings us back to that Kelly conversation of him being, the next best thing in surfing for 30 years and us being like, we're ready to move past it, you know, like in a way. And that's kind of where what youth came into the fold in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I remember like the first issue that I, after I quit to start what youth and went silent for a while was Kelly went to New York and won the biggest surf contest in New York ever, you know, with that hail Mary. And we're like, damn it. We can't even get like Owen to beat this. Like, yeah, it was you know, I, I'm a, like a big celebrator of Kelly. I like critical of, of the wave pools, but like everything he's done. And I'm always like, there's no one I'd rather still be holding the baton for the mainstream's interpretation of surfing than Kelly. Like he's, yeah, it's incredible what he's been able to do. But the, definitely as a younger person, like, God, I've been like watching this guy's video parts for a long time. Like, can we move on yeah and so you like overly celebrate day and you you you're like yeah give us that that style you know give us the sonic youth it's like yeah rebelling against your parents music and just laying on the distortion because you anything but that <laughs> and that was like so what youth was that to us was like let's let's lay on the distortion pedal for these people but do it well like we're we Kai's a good filmmaker we're storytellers you're our our we've got the like formula to uh, put it out well let's yeah lean into whatever that distortion is though as surfing makes its impressive showcase for the second time at the Olympic Games Paris 2024, Samsung is capturing every epic moment through a new docuseries and a celebration of our culture, bringing the spirit and stories of surfers, including Joanne DeFay, John John Florence, and Jack Robinson to the forefront. Want to dive deeper into our world? Visit youtube.com slash at Samsung. Well, and everything kind of becomes a reaction at some point, right? A response, you know, like like what youth was creating an identity in response to what was happening in the world. And then that 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 it, it continues to maintain. But I mean, generationally, I felt like the surfers that came up after that first wave responded a little differently. You know, they took a little bit of the sonic youth distortion at maybe apathy towards competitive results a little bit and then pivoted this way, you know, whether it was with brother or John or whoever, they kind of adopted it. But I, I almost don't think it was as black and white or it's as black and white as it was then as it is today. I think they just kind of adopt everything and they're like, no, I can yeah, do this. Yeah. And well, I, I was going that. through the issues. I'm like that everybody was like on tour and doing these trips. I mean, I, th I saw something someone did recently about how, uh, 
guys on tour would always, it was, um, it was like about Andy and somebody that was like, the guy won the world tour and put out these two video parts in the same year. And, and, you know, like you attacked it all. And, and like, I can't tell you how many times we've invited different people on different projects or trips to, to, that would help their profile or just be a part of and, and let loose. And they've, you know, decided not to because of an event or just not because of an event, but just because there's, they don't want to get hurt or they, whatever. And I, I totally get that, but it also like, that's why I think we don't know as many of the guys on tour as we should and know them well and have a reason to root for them other than that we, that they are on their screen. Um, right. Yeah. And we're like that generation we knew them behind the scenes and we knew them on the stage. We knew them, we knew them well. And we were able to choose who was our favorites and who, you know, we related to or who we wanted to root for or root against. And now, you know, it's, it's different. It's, it's just very, yeah, no, not many, some do, you know, like Yagodora will always do his best to show up at stuff. And he did. And I think he's one of the few, like, uh, Brazilians in the American media who has this kind of like um, different image than some of the, or they just feel like they know him better. And he he had moved here, of course, but so is Philippe. But Yago like jumped on a bunch of like weird American trips and came on some wet youth trips that when he was like young. And because of that, you just kind of like he his profile was just there. It was like you felt like you knew him, so you kind of like have this thing where you kind of root for him. I think in this. You know, this for stuff. sure. I, I mean, I wonder if you and I, just because of where we grew up and and what we were into, like, if we overvalue the the importance of American media. And I bring that up as sort of a bit of self reflection too, right? Because you know, I I think Gabrielle's kind of an interesting one where you know he's doing just fine, um, and he's obviously big in America, but he was kind of demonized in America a lot too because he's kind of the the yeah. hyper competitive like foil to someone like John who maybe is perceived as a bit more of a natural yeah. kind of surfer. Um, but I, I mean, I was bringing this up the other day too, because, you know, we kind of have blinders on in the Western world. Sometimes I remember the year Italo Ferreira qualified and we were just so distracted by everything else. And I remember people being like, what do you think of him? I'm like, oh, I haven't seen that much of him, but you know, it's just like a kind of another Brazilian, you know, and within this broader storm, and I mean, in year one, he really wowed people. And it's like a few years later, he's the world champ. And it's like, we just kind of being close to the the Velcro Valley surf industry and having all these other sort of Western platforms for, for culture and lifestyle to be elevated, maybe above pure performance. Not that that's the most important thing, but I do think it's one of those things that maybe like in a few years time, it it won't matter as much. Um, no, for sure. I mean, totally we're, bi we're biased because of like where we grew up in our backgrounds. It's funny. I had like this full like daydream while surfing that I was like, there's no one you brought up Gabriel and like, there's actually no one more punk rock than him since Andy on tour. And it may not be the, the, the way that Andy was necessarily, but Andy was sure. sort of like, didn't give a shit who he was against. He he was like kind of a villain at times in his like way. And 
Gabriel is that. We just like he's not a westernized villain, but he's but he's a yeah right. <laughs> um, but he's punk. He's as punk as anything. He doesn't care. He he's so savage, and that's how Andy was. He's like, sorry. It just I mean, we kind of like glorified Andy because I mean, they're they're both insane talents, and you can kind of like pick that apart separately. But the there's just like a punk thing to Gabriel and it is not Western because we, we have a hard time like associating that to, you know, the punk rock of Andy and what everything he represented. But, but look at Gabriel is like, that's pretty sick. And like how he's a middle finger to the air in a way. And, and I think we, we don't know how to celebrate that because it's a different style of it. And it's a different culture. And I think he looks at it and he's like, completely comfortable being celebrated in South America and probably like broadly around the world. I think the, mm-hmm. the connective tissue between him and Andy is they were just, they're both unapologetic and, yeah. and that's kind of when it clicked for Gabrielle because it's was the Andy thing. He used to say like, everyone wants you to win your first world title. And the second they do, they want you to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Gabby winning at, at 20, like, you know, I think at some point you always want to be sort of the fresh face, like, like the yeah, the, the universally loved guy. And when it clicked for him was when he kind of said, look, I don't care. Like I'm here. I'm who I am. I'm going to be unapologetic. And and that's when he got really savage and lethal in competition. Yeah. And I think there's something to kind of celebrate about that, that I hadn't thought about in a while. I was like, God, he's, he's so good. And he's kind of, he, he plays it up, I think in like his circles, but I think like as, you know, whether it's American media or Australian media or whatever, like there's something we could, I don't know, like celebrate there more than we maybe do. Cause it's like really easy to just be like, Oh, he's a jerk (laughs) or whatever. He did that to so-and-so or wow. He doesn't care. He's brilliant. And like, yeah, he won like, I remember he won the Andy Irons award a few years ago. I think it like surfer pole, like maybe it was the year he won the world title. And I remember there was a big, like, big issue with it. I think you may have been the first Brazilian to win the award yeah. and people were like, oh, how, how, you know, how, and it's like, he's a lot like, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. He, super similar. He, he's I, maybe I have, the most, the most worthy like recipient of it in a lot yeah, of ways. He can, it's, it's an attitude and he has it. And like I said, it's just because we kind of can't like quite wrap our like ideals of what we maybe celebrate yet. You know, he's like pretty cocky in like a way and like, you know, flashy in a, in a, in a way, but which isn't, ex, you know, exactly how Andy was, but the, the, the underlying current of what makes that something to root for is all there. And it's all very, very Andy. And I think, yeah, we, we do well to kind of like link that more than we think, <laughs> which is a scary well, thought and like kind of a weird thing, but. Um, well, we're both modern men. Like we're we're able to like check ourselves on our biases and so. Oh yeah, no, we I mean, we went down we went down a rabbit hole though. I want to get back to the, yeah, to your your particular voice and how you felt like you achieved expressing it at, at your time at What Youth and what are the projects that you you felt really good about and and I guess talk us about you know however you're comfortable talking about how it ended and, and mm-hmm. the period between what youth and inherent bummer maybe walk us through through that process a bit yeah yeah i'll take from the from the beginning we kind of like left off right there but that we did that trip to japan that kicked off the fr- there's two trips to japan that we all everyone kind of knows and um the first one had kolohe connor yaden and 
Dane. And it was like, we flew straight into a typhoon thinking maybe it would work. And we kind of got like good waves, but it was just like a really like symbolic trip. It, It celebrated everything. It was like going into like a foreign place with like friends and we kind of got waves and a lot of people, I remember Evan Slater texted me like, you should pull out. And I was on my way to LAX. He's like, you shouldn't be doing this trip. That typhoon just like turned, it's going to hit. But we're already like halfway there. And it was a, it was like a turning point for me going like, no, I'm going to go with my gut as opposed to like Evan's gut. I mean, I wrote about it in the story about it and it, it was symbolic of that. And I think that became the attitude that, that sparked the what you think. I remember Kai and I on that first trip were like, I think we should really explore doing our own thing. I don't know what it is, but we'll, let's explore it. And so the seed was kind of just planted to explore whatever that might be. I don't know. We were just trying to be modern, like do do the website, do the magazine in a more modern way. And and so, um, yeah, that I mean, like it was six months later and we launched a website and then um, the first issue with Craig on the cover holding a painting that, you know, like that, that in itself was like, what the hell? Like what it, and that's what we wanted to do. Obviously is just kind of like celebrate, you know, art photography and, and that, and I don't know. Yeah. Kind of be, be the aerial hipsters a bit, but, and I think we brought like music and if we had a food column and a drink column and a, just some different stuff that, um yeah like I think it, that's why I think that's why it worked too like and we talk about it on this quite a bit um if you start listening to him you might you might talk <laughs> about it. but if it, it is you know but but like but you and I have actually had beers and talked about this a lot and we're of the same age so it's like when we were coming up surfing was a window to like other parts of life like mm-hmm. whether it was politics or gender issues or culture or art or whatever and then kind of as we were coming up, it became so self-referential that it like disappeared up its own ass in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's why What Youth was really potent at the start. It's like, well, no, hey, it's not just one thing. And this can be not only enjoyed by people who don't surf, but it can also introduce surfers to other things in life, yeah. um, which I, I think that's why it was appealing. Was it... Was it commercially successful from your perspective? Did you guys no. sell a lot of issues? Did the did the industry back it from an advertising perspective or anything? It it would go through like waves. Like right out of the gates, we had some like really good supporters. Like Dylan Slater supported it really well. And we were able to like exist and print the first issue because of Rip Curl's support. Um, and if you were to like take a snapshot of the whole thing, I mean, no one no one made any money. We we had jobs for four years or six years or whatever it was through, through that, it, it's, that's incredible that we <laughs> pulled it off. But, um, yeah, no, I, the industry would like every brand would like have its own. It was like the transition from brands using media as a voice to the transition to like them becoming their own media house. And so we right. were always like constantly fighting that I feel like. And so that's why we ended up trying to play the, we were like, well, if they're going to be media, then we can be a brand too. And that we had like a bit of like momentum with just like apparel and, and, and yeah. products and collaborations that we did um, that helped float some lean, you know, advertising months. Um, you just had to juggle like, you know, you go to like, there's times we'd go to like a Hurley and they're like, no, we have like in-house team that handles it. And it, it would right. ebb and flow. We would still do projects with them, but then the next year they'd be like, no, we've got it handled this year. And so it just created all this like 
clutter. And then you have even beyond that, like the surfers themselves becoming their own media, you know, and and you're like, all right, well, so what is the role of what youth at that point when the brands want to do their own content, the surfers want to do their own content, you know know what I mean? It becomes totally. And that's, and that's, I think what made us kind of so nimble. And like we, you said, like, what were we proud of? I think we like, it started as a surf thing, which would have like some, you know, culture in it, but the first, we did like an interview with Alex Olson, the skater, and that like broke down crazy barriers between skating and surfing instantly just because he was willing to do this interview with us and talk about skating and surfing because it was coming out of that era when the night, like, I don't know, the 90s and early 2000s, like you couldn't really do both. There was no current Caples and Grayson Fletchers floating around right. really. There, it was like, it wasn't a thing. And so we did that interview with like Alex he's friends with the friend of a friend and like um that that was like oh cool okay sweet and then I mean by the end what youth was like a surf skate music I mean just like a youth culture kind of like thing that there was no nothing I had to say no to as far as like any kind of youth culture project you know we didn't do right. snowboarding because like I don't think any of us knew anything about snowboarding but other than that like we were doing like artists and musicians, like old musicians, young musicians, like it it was kind of everything. And so I think like, that's what we became most proud of is like that we were able to like break down all these kind of walls and it became beyond surfers. But at the same time, the surfing that we were showcasing was usually like as, you know, high level elite as it was. It wasn't like we were sacrificing it. It was like, you know, via Kai and, and my contacts, we were able to get whatever, up and coming surfer or, you know, the Chippas and Danes and everybody to kind of like jump on when, when projects made sense. So we weren't like sacrificing that. It was always like pinnacle surf entertainment and then say yes to anything that, you know, you feel like embodies what we're trying to do. And there's always like, there's a difference between was it a commercial success and was it a success? Because as you said, well, no, it employed a bunch of people. We paid rent. We were able to buy beer. We got to go surfing and go on surf trips. Like what? Yeah. And it's still, you, what so, more do you want? You know? Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, we've got 19 issues that we put out that, you know, are coffee table books that, that exist out there. And, and like the website still, you can still access all that and watch it. And, um, our portfolio creatively that sits there as the, what youth eras that we were in there in the seat is, so powerful to us and still something that I think we're all proud of and, and whatever. So it's like that, you know, there's so many projects and so many different things. And I mean, we went to Copenhagen and did a skate film, me, Kai, and like everyone like <laughs> with Dion and Brendan Gibbons were there. And, um, you know, we made Kolohe's like only sort of attempt at a sort of profile project. Um, and I wanted to do that just because I, I felt like I knew Kolohe, a Kolohe that a lot of people weren't seeing. And not to say right. good or bad. I just was like, there's a there's a part of you that that is not being shown. Let's oh, try to show sure. it. And I think we accomplished that. I don't know if it was like as well, like widely seen or whatever, because we were white youth and like there was kind of like, I don't know, we were like a little pocket of of our world audience wise, but, um, 
yeah, like that. I was stoked on how that came out because it was like a chance for him to surf with his friends as opposed to being this athlete um, all the time, which now he, he, has, he puts out like stuff he does with loss and stuff is always like refreshing. But at the time, yeah, it was I like, mean, uh, well, it goes back to what you're talking about before of like dimensionalization. And it's like it, if people aren't putting out all sides of themselves, if it's just one note, like how do you get excited about someone, whether they're a competitive surfer or a free surfer was, was the brother film the high water mark for you at what youth or was there a different one? Do you have one? I, I, the high water mark for sure. I think everyone would say the same thing was the cluster world premiere um, yep. because it was like, I mean, I loved making every small video, big video. Like I got to interview and hang out with people that I'm super proud of. And like, I th- yeah, I, I don't know that I could go down. And like, if you just like go on the website from that era that I was in there and it's all cool in some way to me. Um, and that's 20, 2015 cluster came out. Yeah. Cluster is 20. Is it 15? Yeah. Um, I think so. I'd, I'd have to check. It was, Jan- it was a January. It was like right at the beginning of the year, whatever year it was, it must've been about 15. Okay. I, and I think that was like so symbolic because we, we partnered with Huff Shoes, the skate brand at the time, you know, who were like kind of the cool skate shoe brand and like Keith Nagel had like kind of become friends with us and we'd become friends with like Austin Gillette and Dylan Reader and that Huff crew they had at the time was friends with Craig and um, the skaters and the surfers were like friends again. And then we threw this party, the world premiere. Did you go at the one at the Ace? I- I don't, okay. I generally, I just pretend like I go, but then I just get the screeners yeah. and well, watch this, it. Well, this, like, the one at the Ace was, like, a very, I, the reason it's, like, stands out to me is, like, beyond the party was because it was, there were, like, all these skaters that the surfers looked up to were there because they knew that the surfers brought hot girls to their parties, and there was, like, actually, like, yeah, like, crazy, I mean, my my mom sat next to Anthony Kiedis, like, front row in the in the theater. Yeah. And just there's, it was like this gathering of like um, skate, surf, music. We had like good bands and just in downtown LA for this like weird thing, not at the beach. It like celebrated what we were about. Like, I feel like what we, what youth and like represented in its, um, in its moment. And it was, you just looked around and the people that were there were people that you'd for a long time been such a fan of instead mm-hmm. of just, kind of the usual industry people who <laughs> showed up and were like just doing their due diligence to make sure they saw it. But it was like um, kind of a celebration of that, that we broke down a lot of those walls that like, and, and a lot of people came <laughs> like a lot, you know, you fill up the ACE in downtown LA, the theater. Um, so that was cool. I, I mean, that was just an event, but it was to premiere cluster and um, that, that film like drove so much of what we were building at the time. And I mean, it still is like kind of the final profile film we've seen and may ever see. I don't properly, who knows? Um, it was, I mean, it, I think it, it was a, it's an amazing film and it really like announced a lot of things, which I think is, I don't want to give what youth too much credit. Cause I think it's a lot of your, your insight and your voice that carries through a lot of these things, you know, like you, you guys were ahead of the curve on John, a cluster was ahead of the curve on Noah, you, you know, like you, well, no, if you look at the covers of, of what you, we, I got shit for putting Creed on the cover, Creed McTaggart 
on a cover because he it was just him like sitting drinking a coffee pot of water and people were like who is this kid and then you know like a month later he was you know everybody recognized him and then same with Noah was like putting out a flame on his shoe in Paris <laughs> like this really dark weird photo that we put on the cover and people were like who's this kid you guys are like have lost it and we're like no these I promise you in like six months these will be the it guys um, even when we put Craig on the first cover he was like I mean he was a superstar but it was like what what is that how is that gonna like sell magazines to start your company um, and and that but that was never the driver it was like what's like a really interesting moment or it's a really kind of strange thing that that happens during the course of making this that we can put on the cover and um yeah, I mean, we there was nothing <laughs> that made it so hard to pick a cover for that magazine because it it could be anything, and and you were really right. trying to like riddle down, but you wanted it to make sense, and it had to make sense to the general like theme of life or surfing or or what we were going through. So, yeah, yeah. It made it well, I think I it, it's like yeah, I can imagine <laughs> right because it's one of those things where it's like yeah, I mean, I've been looking at surf photos my whole life. I can pick a good one, but when we're trying, as you put it, like to use this as a platform to tell a, a more balanced or a wider apertured story of surfers and surfing, like it could be anything. Um, and that's a challenge. If 2015 and cluster was the high water mark for you and, and what was the trajectory for you between then and, and the time when you decided to leave in, in 2018? Yeah, I mean, I, I, nothing changed. We were like, we were probably doing better than we ever had. Um, you know, we were doing really. Uh, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, God, it cuts off every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, like I felt like we had access to like people and and personalities and interesting stories to tell more than ever. Um, we did like a fairly normal on Dane towards kind of the end that was really interesting it was like kind of like one of those times he opened up the house to to his whole world with <laughs> Pam and and the kids and Sammy and I think he announced that he was having the twins on that in that episode and um yeah I was like we're no we were everything was good and we were talking about doing um some different like large film projects and um a lot of just like learning kind of the i mean the industry dynamic was like ever changing and we went through like two minor <laughs> recession setback almost and brands going out of business and and a lot of a lot of that it was never seamless there was never um like a formula for brand participation it was like a constant dialogue that you had <clears throat> to be a part of to get you know participation not no one was like against it but it was like okay what's your agenda as a brand how can we help or work with your guys and and you'd go across the street to another brand and they'd have a completely different set of ideas of how that would work and so it was a it was like a big juggling act of, of like figuring that out and um you know we <clears throat> introduced like a lot of um merch and we're, we're doing pretty well with that and like um I'm also also the we made the Dylan Reader issue uh, when we were at What Youth when he passed away thanks to Mark Oblo's like connection with that with the family and I mean that was like that's definitely I I, I have to make that a high water mark that was like one of the um, most I don't know emotional and and 
I don't know, proud things we could have put out there is that, that issue. And that definitely was insane to be a part of and, and work with them on that and have access to some of the photos and like stories that we got to put in that. Um, so that too, then that was another part of like breaking down those walls and, and wanting to be a part of a bigger story than surf culture and just more about like youth culture and what we're, how we all, you know, live and how similar it can be and different it can be. Um, but yeah, and then so towards the end, we, Scott had, we all, what was Scott? Scott like left to, was kind of like working on a few other projects, not like totally gone. He'd do the, do the magazine and would still kind of do a lot of the heavy lifting on graphics, but, um, was phasing out as far as like day to day. And then, um, basically just kind of came to a fork in the road with some people who, uh, had helped us get to where we were, which I'll go in that, but the, at some point, um, like if your visions don't align, then you kind of go your separate way. And it got to a point too, where I, I, as, as much as we built and how much momentum we had, I had to have like a certain person out of my life completely that was in there that I didn't, yeah, no longer trusted, no longer, uh, kind of could have kind of like a good relationship with and just had to like rip the bandit off and it was like horrific and you know our whole creative team at the time like left and um you know it was hard because like a lot of people that wrote for us like um Maya Slami like our music girl like was working for there I don't we had like a lot of people our like crew who that affected like instantly like they had to sure decide whether to keep writing or, um, and it still kind of goes on in, in some way. I, I don't really like look at it a whole lot myself, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's out there and still, there's, hopefully there's still some young kids getting psyched and putting stuff out. I mean, we, we've had this conversation on this podcast before, which is like, you know, blurring the personal and professional lines with something like surfing, where you do have a vision and a belief and an identity um, and you can wrap it up into a career of sorts, like it, everything is emotionally charged, right? Mm -hmm. And um, things become harder when you have to make those decisions. But what did, uh, what was the window like for you between making that decision? And I think I read you like went up north or something for a period of time and then ended yeah. up coming home. Yeah, well, yeah, I went through that in like February and then had a, yeah, like a long-term relationship end and Sort of, yeah, I've got to, to restart and went up and stayed with Taylor Paul, who was worked with me at surfing. Uh, he lives in San Francisco, and he was like, uh, yeah, come up here and surf OB, because I'd always had this, like, uh, vendetta with OB and sharks, and he's like, all right, it's time. You you need to get up there and uh, face these fears and these things. And so I, I'd go up and surf OB with him and um, just, yeah, surf cold water and then, um, yeah, I ended up meeting a girl up while I was up there and, um, she, she lived even farther north in San Francisco, um, as a writer. And so we, you know, I'd go up and stay and hang out with her up in near Bodega Bay. A lot, you don't talk about a lot of the spots up there, but, um, sure. yeah, some spots that <laughs> definitely, uh, some good scary waves up there. And yeah, I kind of had like a good, I don't know what, like a six month kind of like, it's a dream, a surf, surfers kind of dream, like get away to slow down after, especially after just being so immersed in culture and noise and, and clutter of industry. Um, 
yeah, and I'm not going to over glorify. I mean, I was just up there surfing and kind of hanging out and writing and trying to fire up. Like, you know, I still have plenty I want to uh, do, which has kind of led to Inherent Bummer, and um, which is a very similar concept. It just, I've, I think it leans a little more surf as of now and, and um, trying, I'd say the number one goal right now is developing a platform where, for one, where I can have a voice. And then um, yep. two, it's like, I was just with Chippa Wilson. I was just with Nate Tyler, and I was I talked to Dane on the phone about it recently, um, which is what you know he's really interested in doing with his blog too. Is um, just giving some of the young young guys who have come into the the industry at a time when they're supposed to put out their own parts and have them do do it all themselves but there's no context to them. They don't have anyone to surf next to other than like putting out their Instagram. So it's like a very lonely rise as a talented young surfer in the pro ranks. If you're not, maybe you're not competing or you are, but you still, it's like hard to, um, you know, do what we were all doing like in that. And so I think he's doing that. And I want to do that with this as well. Like, and a lot of those guys expressed like so much interest, like Chippo really wants to surf next to these young guys and, you know, I think validate them and then get driven by them and like see what they're up to. So if we can kind of be the the one of the vehicles that gets everybody kind of back in the van together, then that's that's cool. Well, I mean, that I mean, it's a really cool kind of like not end note, but I guess sort of chapter note on how a voice can evolve over time. Right. Where if you if you track back to how you started with. Evan at surfing and learning what his perspective was on building a magazine and what stories were important to taking the reins yourself and being like, no, we're going to disrupt and and this is what we're into. And this is what is going to get the share of voice while I'm at the helm to now, you know, we're, we're both in our mid thirties. We'll stay mid thirties. Um, and, and like all of our, all our contemporaries that we came up with are in the same space where it's like, well, yeah, no, we still believe in things, but the things we believe in are now being adopted by a generation coming up and we want to use our voice or our platform or the prestige associated with being a pro surfer of, of a certain level to help that next generation come up and, and, and have a, as you said, like a comparative platform for them to tell their own story. Totally. And, and I think there's like a lot of, um, there's so many different outlets now, uh, that it's, <clears throat> I, there's like a lot of like pandering too. There's a lot of like strange like voices sure. that gloss it. And so I, just to kind of be, you know, like uh, just an even keeled kind of like core committed thing that has a little bit of like of a reputation, you know, whether it's like, you know, working with Kai or everything that we've, we've done in the past, it's like still there. I'm not going to say, I don't want to like, you know, tell a 21 year old what's cool but i i want to give them a platform to so they can do it and like i think that's kind of like the the long-term thing is like make sure those are still there because yeah there aren't as many and um there is a lot of clutter but there's a i want there to be a place where you can kind of trust the voice a bit and trust Mm. kind of what's coming out and you don't have to agree with it all i also look around the space and a lot of the voices right now are they lean like gossipy and I love some of, I love most of them for for what they are. Um, but I, like I said at the beginning, it's like sort of like hopelessly romantic and in that enthusiasm, like I want, I want to like, you know, 
get out of the car or get out of the computer, like fired up. And, and like that feeling you have when you're like, see something, you're like, really like, I want to do that with my friends or I love that. I just discovered a band or a surfer who I'm like fired up on. Um, kind of like that, that feeling. And I think a lot of times while well, right, <laughs> Damien Farinfort was like, why you're when I when I see you when I talk to you you're you're so enthusiastic but you're always like griping about something on your on the websites, and I don't want I, I think whenever I gripe it's like usually to try to like get to a place where we're like, in the van making surf movies again and it's like that that climb takes a lot of like clawing to to get there because it's not that simple anymore um, to rally everyone as as maybe it was in the past and. Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it will get simpler. I mean, if there's one thing, the global stay-at-home pandemic, <laughs> yeah. it's like you got. I mean, but it it is one of those things where I'm like, we got space and time to pause and reflect, and like, I think that's kind of the thing that I've noticed personally. Getting older is it's like you do get dragged in a lot of directions when you're younger because you're like, I think I should do this or that's popular or that's how I'm going to get money or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's just like you kind of understand who you are a bit better as you get older and you're like, well, no, that's the easiest thing for me to do because it's truer to who I am and that's what I want to do. And I might make a billion dollars doing that, or it might not be in vogue and I'll just, I'll be able to buy beer with it. It's fine. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been able to afford beer through all, throughout all of this. <laughs> so, it's a radic <laughs> radical yeah. success story. And you are just so people know the founder, editor in chief, CEO, CFO, CMO, intern, writer, and producer at Inherent Bummer. <laughs> I have, I have tons of help from other people, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, this is sort of my project at the moment, but, um, you know, constantly bringing on, there's, it's a, it's a writing platform too. I'm starting to, um, get a lot of cool submissions of like young writers who are kind of like, yeah, there's, there's only a few outlets. So if, if, uh, anybody's looking to write, hit us up and we can try to get, get you a little platform for that. And, and yeah, and young surfers too, it's like, I'm constantly wanting to talk to the brands about giving a platform. I think there's like, there's not as many places to see, you know, like the other day, I couldn't figure out who rode for Quick, like <laughs> at some point, like some, like the younger team. And, you know, I had to call Chad Wells and he had to walk me through it. And, and some of her like incredible surfers who, uh, yeah, they just deserve to be kind of like surfing with the, the boys, I guess. <laughs> I, I always find that bananas and probably because where you and I came up, it was like, you'd go to a website, you're like, who's on that team? I'll just go to the website. And it's like the first thing it's before, you know, oh, yeah. board you shorts or wetsuits. It's like, you can't, some of the places don't even list them. I'm like, why would you? Anyway. No, none, I, none of them list them right now. Very prominently. Uh, You've got to Google deep. You, you got to go deep, team, deep, which is deep weird because they represent your brand. So anyway, get the team writers prominent. Let's go. I'm with you. Before we go, um, and because you haven't listened to these, uh, this will all be coming at you <laughs> first time. We do we do the, the lightning round. So oh, these great. are ten questions. Ten questions. There you go. Perfect. Ten oh. questions. Answer as fast as you can. Okay. If you can only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, what would you take? Thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Oh, I got asked taco or pizza the other day. Uh, uh, I'm going to go pizza because I like tacos more than burritos. All right. Pizza. La last book you read? Um, I read A Confederate General in Big Sur by Richard Brodigan yesterday. Best surf film ever? Best surf film ever. Oh, my God. Um, 
what I'll dear suburbia, I'll go with you on that. Just being a part of it, and I could probably go back in the ancient history, but I'm if if I'm going back to Gromhood, I'm the focus guy. One wave you never have to go back to. Never have to go back to. Um, uh, Chengu. <sighs> Um, only get to surf one way for the rest of your life. Uh, Huntington. <laughs> Best person to share a lineup with? Um, Dane, beca- if for like on the elite level, because I was just talking to Damien Farrenford about this too. He st- when he stands up, he he turns into like a different thing and is so psyched, and then he like paddles back out like chill. But that it's like really inspiring, you know, especially in this time when like gliding at my age a lot of my friends that surf well are just kind of into gliding which is cool but i get really fired up at like a peer who's still that amped on a wave and so it, I, I enjoy seeing when you get the chance to see him out there um it's pretty it's pretty like cool to see someone your same age like that psyched that's a good one worst person to share a lineup with uh my friend brent Lockin. No, just because we've been competing against each other since we were kids. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love serving with them every day, but we're, <laughs> we're still competitive in some way. Last question. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Going outside. All right, man. Trav Ferre, thank you very much for being on the lineup. No, thank you, Dave. This is fun. So that's it. That's our first low tide quarantine conversation of the lineup. And a huge thank you to Travis Frey for accommodating us. I hope you enjoyed it. This strange time continues and I hope you're all staying informed as calm as possible and you're able to help yourself, one another, and your loved ones through it. The world is making us take a pause whether we want to or not. And we should try to find the positives in that if we can. We'll continue to have these conversations and release lineups every week. Please have a listen and let us know what you think. And if you haven't listened to our other pods, please download, listen, rate, and subscribe to them if you can. They're available wherever you get your podcasts and our fantastic social distancing activities. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of The Lineup at Low Tide. Hope you get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you then.